0: to the bill kelly podcast i'm bill kelly premier doug ford says he is committed to maintaining the wage increase brought in for psws during the pandemic but he hasn't said anything about how or when his government's actually going to act on that pledge this past school year was difficult for many with months of at-home virtual learning while schools remain closed due to the pandemic we're in july now and many are asking what is the safe school plan for september and Canada's federal and provincial governments may have underestimated the power of the economy to rebound from the pandemic-induced recession. Ian Lee, Associate Professor at the Sprott School of Business and Carlton University, will join us to talk about it. It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. As you know, we're at a heat warning right now, right across southern Ontario. It's very, very hot and very humid today, which can be dangerous uh, for people that have respiratory concerns and, of course, for the frail and elderly. Thank heavens, it was just a few months ago that the Premier promised that there was going to be air conditioning in every room, not just in the common areas, but in every room in long term care facilities. Well, it's not happening. As uh, Global's Dave Woodard reports, we're getting a different message from the government now.
1: According to a spokesperson in the long-term care ministry, the new target is to have 83% of all long-term care rooms with air conditioning by the end of summer. Geriatrician Dr. Nathan Stahl says the change in messaging is not incredibly helpful. The lack of transparency. Transparency and clear responses about what's causing the delay just creates mistrust. He says that from what he's heard, the reason for the delay is twofold. The supply chain of air conditioners and the ability to actually install some of these things when homes were in outbreak. Dr. Stahl says the government should tell the public why there's a delay. People do understand that that things still aren't normal
0: uh, during COVID-19 when it comes to a lot of sectors.
1: Dave, what are the global news?
0: Okay, uh, thanks, Dave, for the report. Uh, the, you know, the excuse or the rationale, whichever phrase you want to use here, is they say there's a problem with supply. It was a year ago that the Premier made that promise. A year. They've had a year to get this thing together, and it's still not happening. And, it, and having air conditioning by the end of the summer? Really? That's Does that make any sense to you? Anyway, uh, let's, let's talk about that because I want to talk about the condition in long-term care facilities because I think we need to talk about some of the details here and some of the promises that have been made. I'm uh, pleased to welcome back to the program to do this Dr. James Thiessen. Uh, Dr. Thiessen is the uh, Director of Health Administration and Community Care and an Associate Professor at Ryerson University. Uh, Doctor, thank you so much for the time. Great to have you back on the program today.
2: Thank you very much. Good morning, Bill.
0: Good to have you with us. Uh, lots of promises here. Uh, not too many of them have, have, have actually come to fruition. Uh, for the people that have uh, loved ones in long-term care facilities and for the people that are working in these facilities, Doctor, this is a very frustrating time.
2: It sure is. And anyone who's had loved ones in these facilities and visited them in those stifling rooms um, will be you know, mortified that... Um, this has not been addressed yet, um, and we know with global warming, summers are getting hotter every day, every year. Shall I say? It's really a problem.
0: And, and like I said, just in preamble here before you joined us, I mean, he said a year. It was a year ago, this month that he made that promise. So, the, you know, the the suggestion that well we're having a problem with supply chain I, that doesn't really hold water.
2: It it, it doesn't. But and again, I, I I don't want to be an apologist for the managers of these facilities. But, you know, they've had their hands full the last year with all kinds of things. And this is another thing. Frankly, this should have been in place years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and to turn it around under the COVID conditions is something to be admired. That's my admirable goal, but um, it's really unfortunate that it hasn't um, come to be.
0: When we look at what needs to be done here, and, and as I mentioned, I want to include both the residents and the people that work in these facilities, mm. uh, the, 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 the playbook as to what needs to be done to try to fix a lot of the concerns that have been raised here is, is really there in, in the number of reports that have actually been done about the facilities and some of the shortcomings.
2: Yeah. Um, we've had we're, a couple big reports of the province, and now um, Dr. Sinha is doing a national review of what's, what's necessary. Yeah, um, we, we know what has to be done. It's money and time, but I'd say largely money is um, getting in the way, and um, simply the operators need to have incentive to uh, get this done.
0: So what what incentive is, is, has to be put on the table there? I mean, what is it going to do to motivate these people to say, okay, we have to do it today, not six months from now, not four years from now?
2: <laughs> well, I think, I think that they, they will... Need to get they, they can access grants for upgrading their facilities and the, and the government has committed to that particularly the older ones uh, facilities that um, you know are getting um, redone and that will be part of the new plan um, I frankly I, I, I really wish I had an answer for this and um, even if they were dropped to drop um, money on the table right now for the operators to work with uh, given supply chain situations and labor shortages and for construction installation all these things i think would be tough to get done um i think it's pretty clear that yeah we're not going to see much more happening this summer unfortunately
0: what about the working conditions i mean we can talk about the 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 residents and that's problematic there's a a story on the front page of the hamilton spectator today uh about grace villa and as you know that was one of the ltc Mm -hmm. facilities that actually had a terrible outbreak Uh, from november of last year to january this year 234 cases uh 44 residents died uh one of the, this is the story of, a, of one of the people that worked there who's now on long-term leave uh, with a post-traumatic stress disorder. And she talked about sobbing in the bathroom. Other residents uh, are on leave, some of them just plain quit. Uh, the working conditions and, and the pressure that's on the staff here uh, is, in her words, immeasurable. And it, I'm sure that Graceville is not a unique situation. It's, I, I'm hearing stories like this anecdotally from a number of facilities right across the province. What, what do we have to do, doctor, to try to increase the... the, the I guess, the availability of of better working conditions, the things that need to be done in the facilities itself. You touched on staffing, for one thing, and there there are a couple of other things, I guess, that that they really should be looking at.
2: Well, certainly, I I agree. Um, Staffing has to be um, improved, increased. Um, And to their credit, though it's a slow process, the government is taking some steps with respect to that. The facilities, as we know, many of them are old. They have to be refurbished. Um, They have to be fixed up and that's a long-term plan. I think what we're seeing um, a year, more than a year, obviously, into this pandemic and how it exposed just how horrible things can be in a lot of these long-term care facilities, we are seeing some steps being taken finally to address it. It's unfortunate it took the pandemic to put a spotlight on this, because um, as I said to you before, we've had these conversations, Bill, um, anyone who's had loved ones in these facilities Um, before the pandemic just knew how challenged they were and how um, terrible some of the working conditions and um, patient conditions can be
0: as a matter of fact and to be fair this predates not just the pandemic but it predates yeah. this government too i mean this has been going on for many many years and we've heard yeah. some some horrific stories about staffing yeah. and and uh and the living conditions there and the working conditions for the staff as well and and like so many other things as doctor it's mm. the, what the pandemic has done is is it's magnified this or at least shone a light on things that probably already existed and, and and of course the pandemic made them much worse but what we're looking for i guess is an action plan and and to that point of course the uh uh the words the yesterday from the premier but uh, that three dollar an hour increase that he was talking about which was now temporary uh, he wants to make permanent is, is that going to help the situation
2: absolutely and you know if if there is um a, a shaft or beam of light in the recent announcements from the government in the response to the uh, pandemic with respect to long-term care that's great news isn't it because that's going to be um, raising the pay of these people by more than 10%, and the and the marginal effect on their incomes is terrific. I sure hope he um, holds to that. And I think the government can pretty well, pretty easily um, afford it. And I'll just give you a number. If you yeah. roughly, roughly, we're talking about a billion dollars extra a year to um, pay for that three dollar increase for the home care and long term care workers. So if you figure the health care budget alone is about $70 billion, I think that's a billion dollars well spent, don't you think?
0: Oh, absolutely. As a matter of fact, a little bit later on in the show, we're going to crunch some numbers uh, because uh, some folks have have looked at some of the the deficit projections for provincial and federal governments, Mm -hmm. and uh, the good news is it's not as bad as they thought it was going to be. In other words, they may have a little more money to play with than they thought they did even three months ago. It would be awfully nice if they looked at that and said, you know what, let's direct it right over here and make this thing work.
2: Absolutely. A billion dollars. Again, long-term care spending uh, for the facility is about $5 billion, and then home care is another 5 or $6. So a um, billion dollars for those um, personal support workers that are doing the heavy lifting and taking care of our family members and friends that need that help at home, that is money well
0: spent when we look at the circumstances here uh, of what's going on and there's a couple of things here that we would maybe connect the dots with here doctor and one mm-hmm. of the ones the announcement they made uh, i guess about four or five months ago now but uh the the accelerated training for people that mm-hmm. want to get into this field And i know the premier talked about that mm-hmm. yesterday now we've got this announcement about increasing the, the the hourly wage for these people uh as now we're still hearing about people that are just as i like grace villa that just say look we can't do this anymore mm-hmm. what can be done immediately i mean they the, the, the Four-year plan to try to increase the number of staff, et cetera, is, is in many people's minds stretching it out far too long. Something has to be done immediately. We need a a, a super shot of something here. What, what would you recommend if the if the premier called you as soon as we finished our conversation and said, "Doctor, what, what give me give me an idea here? What, what's going to go on? What would you suggest?"
2: Given that it doesn't take that long to train people, and you have people who've exited the profession, as you note, know, um, I. I guess I would say pay them five bucks an hour more. I think that the the quickest response would be to raise their compensation even more. Now, that has uh, knock-on effects because people in those organizations that are at higher rates will then demand more. So, you know, this doesn't get you out. But I think uh, people do respond to um, monetary incentives um, pretty quickly.
0: That's one of the disconnects in this system, isn't it? I mean, you know, we always talk about, and you and I have had this discussion many times, I guess, after one of these reports come up, about the difference between privately and publicly owned facilities. Uh, the, the the ones that are run by municipalities, and we have a couple of them here in Hamilton, mm-hmm. there's some in London as well, uh, tend to have higher increases in salary i guess maybe because they're unionized to a certain extent uh the the private ones uh not so much in in situations like that would wage parity be a factor here if the government said look at this is the salary for psws it doesn't matter which facility you're in
2: well yeah wage parity i mean you'd like to raise them all up to the higher level um i think the, the city run uh, facilities do pay more because they have more money to work with they get yeah. um top up from city coffers as well as some land um preferences and so on yeah i think that it, the, the the best way is i guess just to pay these people more and the, the sector i'm concerned about is home care because they get mm-hmm. paid even less than the long-term care personal support workers and we do know that home care is the most effective way and most efficient way of saving money by keeping people at home. So um, the long-term care sector they they're attracting people from the home care sector. So there's a chain of um, influence. So I think you have to pretty well um, bump everyone up. You're, that's a good point to parity to perhaps stop that um, draining of necessary workers from from across the sector.
0: That's. A, a part of this whole healthcare scenario that doesn't get a whole lot of attention. We've had some discussions about that on our program over the last yeah. number of years, and we've talked with the nurses' association about that. And, yeah. and your point is is bang on. Uh, it's very difficult to try to actually get people to do home care simply because of the, the first of all the caseloads and yeah. and the salaries involved in it. I just figured, you know what, if if you're going to dedicate yourself and get trained to be in that profession, uh, a lot of them would rather go into primary care. In other words, the hospital situations because they yeah. s- they know the hours, they know the salary et cetera, and they, and they can bank on that for the next little while. Uh, we, we've got to do a better job, I think, in all sectors, don't we, Doctor, to actually attract people to this profession and, and make it worthwhile? In other words, you know, give them some assistance to, to do the job properly and, and, a, and a living wage in, in many circumstances.
2: I agree completely. Home and community care and long-term care, um, governments for years around the world, frankly, Bill, have been saying this is important, this is the direction of health care, But you got to pay people to do this stuff to make it worthwhile. And people in this field have to see it as a destination um, career. That is, you don't sort of slug it out in home and care and long-term care until you get a hospital gig. You actually say, you know, I really want to take care of people. I want to have relationships with my clients. And, um, and their families and so on. It's a very different type of approach to care because it's about chronic care and, and helping people for a long time. You want to say this, this is a good place to have a career, but to make it a, um, viable, it has to pay properly and offer um, opportunities for advancement.
0: Well, I know there's a new minister, Mr. Phillips. Of course, Minister Phillips has taken over the last couple of weeks, and uh, we're looking for some, some direction, I guess, and, and some leadership on this to try to get some of these things done. But uh, I think you and I had this discussion about this almost a year ago now, Doctor. I mean, if you if you asked 100 residents in long-term care facilities, where would they rather be? Probably 99 of those 100 would say I'd rather be home than than in this facility. And, and we don't usually make that accommodation for them, and that's something that needs to be addressed.
2: Yeah, I, I agree. That's um, we have re- certainly we need the long term care beds because not everyone can be taken care of home, particularly right. if they have severe cognitive problems. But um, the, the spotlight wasn't on home care during the pandemic because a lot of th- things didn't really go that wrong in the sector. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so we we have to uh, keep, you know, pay attention to that sector and um, keep people at home and well taken care of. And, as I said, make sure that people working in that sector have good career prospects and can benefit from the good service they do to help us, to help us and our loved ones, I should say.
0: Well, the fact that he's talking about it, I suppose, is encouraging. And, as you say, uh, you know, it's a promise at this stage. It's not a policy. And, uh, you know, they've they've got to put it on paper right now and say this is the way it's going to be, and and we're hoping that's going to happen sooner than later. Uh, Doctor, as always, thank you for your time today. Great to get your perspective on this. Uh, Stay well again, and uh, we'll talk again soon.
2: Thanks so much, Bill, and, and again, I'll say I really um, appreciate, and we all do, it's just great that you're keeping this in the spotlight because home care, long-term care, that's really important, and um, just keep this uh, discussion going because it really matters.
0: Oh, we certainly will, and, and, and it's because it's all part of the, the, the broader process, isn't it? I mean, if we do a better job of long-term care and a better job of home care, that helps the primary care, the hospital situation, and the number of beds that are there too. It's all tied together, isn't it? Absolutely.
2: People are in hospitals that don't have to be there, and they cost a lot of money, so the system can be saved, can save a lot of money, and... As you said, people can be at home
0: is where they want to be. Doctor, as always, thanks again. We'll talk again soon. Thank you, Bill. Bye-bye. Dr. James Thiessen, uh, Director of uh, Health Administration and Community at uh, Ryerson University. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show Podcast on 900 CHML. I want to talk about education. And we're into the summer break officially, of course. And uh, the anticipation, I think, for most people is that uh, come September, we want the kids to be back in the classroom. Forget about the remote learning, I know that the, the government's pressing for that right now. But uh, what is the government doing to prepare those classrooms and to prepare students for the return to schools? Yesterday, uh, when I was talking with Dr. Peter Yuni, who of course is the chair of the Ontario Science Table, uh, who are offering advice to, to, the, uh, to the government about this whole thing, uh, Dr. Yuni had some interesting ideas about what he thought schools should look like.
2: We can't just uh, play things very easily at schools, you know, then we'll need to stay a few restrictions. We want to make sure that all the kids can go back to schools, that as many as possible have received their first dose if they're above the age uh, 12 or they are above the age of 12. And uh, that just, you know, for for the, for the younger kids that we just have enough restrictions in place that schools are reasonably safe.
0: Well, we want them to be more than reasonably safe. I mean, we want the government to do everything they need to do. And I guess the frustration we have here is we're not hearing a whole lot about this. I know the education minister uh, made an announcement yesterday about funding, but it was uh, actually... To fund a couple of programs, summer programs uh, to address anti-Semitism. Well intentioned, I get that, but we're concerned with the, the bigger picture here. So, what should be done, and what are we doing with our students, and and how is education going to look uh, going forward as we try to move out of this pandemic? Please, to welcome back to the program Charles Pascal, who is a professor at the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education at the U- University of Toronto. He's also a former Deputy Education Minister. Uh, Mr. Pascal, great to have you back in the program. Thank you so much for the time today.
1: Good to be with you, Bill.
0: Let me ask you, first of all, about about process here uh, and what is going to happen. And I I think one of the battles that uh, I I see on the horizon here is when we get back into the classroom, uh, classroom learning versus uh, remote learning. I mean, the government's pushing remote learning uh, long before the pandemic started. That seemed to be a a part of the mantra of the Ford government right now. Uh, We've done it out of necessity, not necessarily because of government policy, because of the pandemic. Uh, But is it something that the government's going to continue to push? Or are we going to start listening to some of the teachers and some of the students, frankly, who have told us it's not such a good idea?
1: Yeah, well, if you follow the, uh, the, the bouncing ball uh, well before the pandemic and during the pandemic and the ongoing uh, rhetoric uh, from a minister that, that, based on all the other things he announces that have nothing to do with the key issues, I refer to him as the dean of distraction. Um, basically, this is about... Uh, saving money, starving, publicly funded education. And either it's the most incompetent government in the history of Ontario. I've been uh, closely involved in one way or another since uh, uh, the great uh, Mr. Davis uh, was Minister of Education in the Mm -hmm. mid-60s.
0: And and this is either
1: total incompetence or it's fomenting, um, uh, you know, privatizing options that will arise. So uh, this is, uh, you know... According to my calendar, Bill, we are exactly nine weeks uh, to the day after Labor Day today. Uh, And we know nothing from this government about what they are doing regarding paying attention to the science and paying attention to uh, educational expertise. So, you know, it is a given uh, that COVID protocols will absolutely uh, still be uh, necessary. Why? Well, let's take a page from Israel. Uh, Israel is uh, noting uh, Israel that had put a, a total damper on uh, uh, on uh, uh, cases. Uh, now is seeing a rise emanating from uh, schools uh, where under twelves uh, basically have become uh, uh, a uh, a crucible uh, for uh, for the Delta variant, uh, which in turn creates uh, unfortunate Trojan Trojan horse opportunities to carry it back to family and other kids. So. Uh, obviously, uh, you know, number one, the schools uh, have to have all the safety protocols uh, that this government has has failed to provide. Uh, and, you know, that's about class size, uh, which need to be smaller and capped. Uh, this is a government that has raised class sizes. Uh, we need all the basics regarding uh, distancing and ventilation and those kinds of things. But we also, Bill, you know, we want our kids to go back. To an environment uh, that's healthy in every way uh, that basically gets us back to, uh, uh, you know, learning is the key to everybody's, uh, uh, you know, better future in terms of uh, not only individuals, but our collective uh, future as a society. Uh, And so there's other things that actually should have been uh, started and in place months ago. Uh, But this is a government that ignores uh, anybody uh, with expertise. Let me give you a couple of examples. Sure. Um, th- one of the things that concerns most parents and a whole lot of students uh, is learning loss. And, you know, uh, is, my, is my child going to be able to, uh, you know, catch up because they've lost a lot? Well, before the pandemic, uh, there were issues about uh, uh, who was getting the right kind of individualized attention. And so with respect to learning loss, you know, six or seven weeks ago, let alone today, Uh, There should have been a massive uh, design of providing uh, mentoring and tutors uh, for students deemed by teachers to need a little bit of a buddy system to catch up. Some non-stigmatizing supply uh, in every school of uh, available uh, mentors and tutors uh, that teachers could call on uh, where necessary. Because teachers know best regarding the individual differences of kids and what they know and what they need to know to catch up. Uh, Mental health and well-being. You know, before the pandemic, there were issues of mental health. Uh, The pandemic has pulled back the curtain on so many uh, uh, kids who are suffering, along with uh, teachers who have been under enormous pressure. And I would have started two months ago uh, workshops for teachers, uh, starting probably in in mid-August, regarding how are they doing themselves, their own mental health, and what to look for regarding returning students uh, to be able to see some of the indicators that there might be students who are either in a corner by themselves not speaking or acting out. And what kind of resources uh, would a teacher have for referral referral uh, to provide mental health uh, expertise and advice? Those things require time, effort, and creativity uh, to, uh, to generate, and they require uh, a large amount of resources that this government has not provided This government has hoarded and taken away resources intended for uh, a healthy and and positive school experience, Uh, and and it's 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 a disaster.
0: How did we get to this point? I'm glad you brought Bill Davis up. Uh, for those who may not know the history, uh, Bill Davis uh, was the education minister for John Robarts, who was the premier for many, many years here in the province of Ontario. And, and Davis, of course, succeeded him in that role. But as education minister, as you remember, Charles, uh, both Robarts and Davis were committed to education. I mean, that, that, those were the halcyon days of education in this province where they built schools, they, they helped teachers, they commissioned the Hall Dennis Dentist Report to say, how can we do this better? Uh, and they were they were invested in education in such a big way. Now we're into a confrontational mode. This government against teachers unions, against just about every aspect of education right now, trying to tear it down and and rebuild it to their likeness or to what they want to see, uh, regardless of the opinions and the advice that they're getting from the the education experts.
1: Yeah, um, I'm very fortunate, I'm very privileged to uh, uh, not only uh, claim uh, my particular perception that uh, William Grenville Davis from Brampton, Ontario, uh, a progressive conservative premier, I might add, yep. uh, was the best education uh, uh, minister and eventually premier we've ever had. And and I claim him, um, and I think he would me, uh, as a friend. And I, 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 I still talk to him from time to time. Um, and Mr. Davis uh, said famously and accurately, if we get publicly funded education right, uh, right throughout the continuum, including preschool, elementary, secondary, and post-secondary. Everything else will take care of itself. Uh, issues regarding uh, health and well-being and costs to the justice system and those kinds of things, uh, th- those costs will go down if we get publicly funded education in its highest quality form. He also understood that uh, education was key to Ontario being, in a, I will quote, a current premier Uh, that Ontario was open for business, he understood that the human capital required for business and industry, businesses large and small, to thrive, they had to have curious, lifelong learners uh, that could adapt and pivot uh, as times changed. Mr. Davis understood this back in the 60s and the 70s and and totally understood the economic benefit of building on what we call the human capital side uh, I as a as a psychologist and, and educator, I call it the human development side of the coin. It's the same thing. It's investing in high-quality, publicly funded education. This government is deliberately, and I, I, I either it's in incompetence or it's intentional. And I don't think anybody is intentionally as incompetent as this premier and this uh, minister. Uh, so it must be the Trojan horse to bring about uh, privatized options and their conversations about uh, online learning are all about
0: saving money. Well, you sh- I'm sure you saw the story Charles uh, from earlier this week about uh uh PCMP uh, P uh what's her name? Uh, Gila Matlow is suggesting look at do we even need teachers in the education system? Why don't we just do everything? And they can be a pre-recorded lesson uh and the kids can sit in the classroom. Now, I, this is just her. This is not the education minister. Yeah, and I'm hoping that <laughs> I'm hoping that nobody's going to pay attention to this, but you 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 Put that in place and, and, and juxtapose that with, and again, I don't want to keep going back to Bill Davis, but I think he's he's the benchmark. He's he's the, the goal that we should be achieving here. Yeah. Uh, yeah. One of the, the many, many wonderful things that he did as education minister, of course, was was the institution of the, of the community college system. You talk about getting Ontario ready to be open for business. Look at how that has grown, and look how important that has become. You need well, visionaries yeah. in education, uh, not not bean counters.
1: Well, that's due to my heart. I'm a former... Uh, college uh, president um and uh, just um his legacy regarding the college movement uh was world class and continues to yep. add to that the business side and regarding the mpp who was musing about uh recording look um a couple things one uh it's it's breathtakingly naive uh, bordering on gross ignorance uh if you wanted to uh if your listeners wanted to look at what it looks like to have individual modules uh, that are pre-recorded, uh, that actually can teach, you know, single concepts and things like that, uh, they can go to the Khan Academy, the famous Khan Academy, K-H-A-N Academy, and they will see our pre-recorded modules. The amount of money and design expertise that goes into those kinds of things as a supplement. Uh, is in the millions and millions of dollars. So this, uh, w- I find the most interesting thing about this ignorant uh, comment from the MPP is not only the naïveté and the ignorance, uh, but not a word from the premier uh, or the minister uh, distances itself. And I, I think she, uh, in, in, in a little bit of uh, you know humble defense, I think she's just riffing off what she hears her premier and her minister saying that it's okay to, to put out uh, stupid ideas that save money. It's all about them saving money. They, this is a false economy. They want to cut. They want to continue cutting. They've already cut millions of dollars. The plan is to cut millions and millions more dollars coming up in the next fiscal out of education. Uh, and it is a criminal assault on what would otherwise be our better collective future, Bill.
0: And I, I know that we've had a number of discussions on the show over the years about this education, and, and I have been a strong advocate for education and for teachers, frankly. Uh, and and it, it's not any political stripe. As you say, the greatest education minister we ever had was a conservative, uh, and it, it doesn't go to the mindset that's going on here. But, I mean, in my formative years, and you and you know, I have talked about this in the past, I mean, outside of my, my mother and father, I mean, it was teachers that, that had the most impact on my life. Absolutely. Uh, and and it's that in classroom, as, as one of the teachers told me, is it's teaching is a social profession. Uh the the impact a teacher can have on a student is not doing it remotely. It's that classroom experience, it's how they teach. It's not the knowledge, it's how they present the knowledge and the relationship that they develop with the student or students in that situation. Uh that's a, a, a message that I think is lost on this government.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. I mean I wrote a recent blog about uh, the importance of that uh, life changing teacher and that we've all experienced, I write about it in my recent book on uh, on the lessons learned from uh, from uh, education and government about uh, the teachers uh you know one of my third grade teacher and a couple others later on who shaped my life in one case might have saved my life and uh, absolutely uh, and you know, teachers are the difference makers. And we need to respect them, and we need to respect those who represent them. This union bashing uh, gets so, uh, again, it's a, another distraction. But one, one final comment about uh, the uh, a premier. Our a current premier is hoping uh, that the public at large uh, next June will suffer from political amnesia. So here's a guy that within the first couple weeks of his tenure uh, canceled all of the indigenous... Curriculum that was going to deal with the horrific consequences that continue to uh, to show up um, uh, regarding residential schools. He insisted that all the, uh, uh, the the indigenous curriculum that was put into the Ontario curriculum uh, be expunged. And recently, uh, because of the horrific and just devastating uh, findings regarding. Uh, the children in uh, bodies found in unmarked graves next to residential schools. All of a sudden this premier goes and he does a performative, uh, appropriated kind of thing about how sad he is. And he says, we need to put uh, all of this in the Ontario curriculum. Excuse me. He canceled this. And now he hopes that the Ontario public will have political amnesia about education, about indigenous issues, about long-term care, uh, about autism and a host of other things This has been uh, an evidence free zone. And I should, I want to, for any listener who thinks that I'm uh, acting uh, out of of my usual zone, which is evidence oriented, uh, I'm a nonpartisan. I'm a recovering bureaucrat. Uh, My values are uh, really quite clear, uh, but I do not hold a, a card for any political party, and that makes me weird, but I follow the evidence.
0: Uh, Charles, we have to leave it there. Time is our enemy, as uh, as always is. I'd love to carry on this discussion. I'm sure we will uh, in the weeks and months ahead. Thank you so much for this. I really appreciate it.
1: Thanks for having me, Bill. You take care.
0: You too. Charles Pascoe, professor at the Ontario Institute for Studies and Education at the University of Toronto. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We want to talk money, your money, and our money. Uh, Stats Canada says the economy actually contracted in April by 0.3% due to restrictions aimed at curbing the spread of COVID-19. TD senior economist Sheree Tanalabalam says that uh, the result is actually better than expected. And there is still a possibility, he says, that the economy could grow in the second quarter, but... Like always, there's always a but, right? Uh, new variants and case counts globally could still hold the economy back. Here's what he had to say.
1: Even though we,
2: uh, domestically we might be a little bit more inoculated uh, from, from the impacts of, of the variant because of our uh, impressive uh, vaccination take-up, uh, it really is a global challenge um, that, that has to be overcome for Canada to really get back to its full economic capacity.
0: So what does this mean financially? Well, uh, it looks like the federal and provincial governments may have underestimated the power of the economy to rebound from the pandemic-induced recession by, like, about $35 billion or so. Yeah, just small change, right? So uh, what's going to happen if, in fact, that happens and governments find themselves with a little more available cash or not as deep in debt as they thought? Uh, Joining us to talk about this is Ian Lee. Ian, of course, is an associate professor at the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. Uh, Welcome to the program, Ian. Good to have you back once again today. Uh, My pleasure, Bill. Were you surprised by these numbers?
3: No, no, um, and I'll explain why. Um, we have known for literally 70, 80 years that um, in Western countries, with a progressive income tax system, and I'm talking Canada, U.S., and the other you know high-income European countries, that um, government revenues are very, very sensitive to growth. That is to say when growth is, is booming or, or accelerating, it generates tons of cash and revenues flown by the billions into the treasury but it works in reverse as well when an economy goes into a recession and and uh, companies are laying off and closing down then govern governments go into deficit very quickly and that's because of what's been called the stabilizers the fiscal stabilizers that the shock absorbers on a car equivalent and that simply means that when you're working each of us you and me and millions of others are paying lots of taxes and when we're laid off guess what we stop paying taxes <laughs> and personal income taxes are 50% of the totality of the revenues of the government of Canada then you throw in income tax personally uh, excuse me corporate income tax and you throw in HST and you're up to 80% and they're both sensitive to the growth too when the economy is slowing or in a recession people are spending less so there's less money flowing into HST, and companies are are losing money. So they're not paying corporate profit. They're not making corporate profits. So they're not paying corporate taxes. So what I'm trying to say is, when you hear numbers like this, uh, this forecast, all it's, all they're saying is that the economy is doing much better than people said it was doing, and uh, it's going to. I mean, to be fair, Christy Freeland, in her budget document, and I was in the lockup, stated at several points in her speech that the government, after the first lockdown, Underestimated the resiliency and the blow and the the snapback of the economy. And then later in the speech, he said, and we were underestimated it on the second after the second lockdown. So government, it's not just the federal; provincial have done the same. They've underestimated the resilience. And I think it's because they are treating this like a quote ordinary recession, where or demand collapses in an ordinary recession. This is not. First off, I don't even think we're in a recession. The economy was doing doing very well. And then the government came along and said, okay, everybody, go home. Stop. Just go home. Shut down your businesses. This was an artificial recession. It was government induced. Now, I understand we did it for all kinds of good reasons, but that doesn't change the underlying fundamental reality that the economy was not sick before COVID. It was doing great. And then the government said, okay, everybody, go home. And so we stopped spending. So guess what? Economy went over the cliff. Well, of course. And the moment the government said, okay, you can all go back to work. It's snapped right back to normal. And so we're seeing that now. There's a lot of pent-up demand. And, I mean, OECD, um, the forecasting or group in Paris, IMF, our own finance ministry, they're forecasting 6% growth this year. I mean, that's, that's the kind of growth that the Chinese government has been achieving for the last 10 or 15 years. So there's, I, I, I think these numbers just simply point at the obvious, that the economy is going to be doing very, very well throughout 2021. And 2022, and the government's going to reap um, a, a, a fiscal windfall and uh, and uh, a very substantial uh, tax surpluses.
0: Uh, when I saw these numbers uh, earlier this morning, the first thing I thought of was a conversation you and I had, I guess, about a year ago now, uh, where you predicted this was going to happen. It's not going to be as bad as they're saying, but don't finance ministers traditionally lowball these numbers just uh, to give them some some comfort room?
3: I think they do. Um, uh, Gives them wiggle room because then. You know, I, I've been saying this to my students. I used to say this when I was at the bank years and years and years ago. It's better to under-forecast and over-deliver mm-hmm. rather than over-promise and under-deliver. Even though you may have produced the same numbers, if you over-promise and you don't come in, you come in below promise, then people say, you know, you're, a, you're terrible, you're a failure, you know, you did a terrible job. Whereas if you if you lowball the numbers... And this applies just as well as much to, you know, the the corporate world, the university world. You're an administrator responsible for some portfolio. You know, you're in radio and you lowball your your numbers of your market audience share. And then they come in higher and you say, hey, look at how good we were. You know, we we exceeded expectations. And so I think that finance ministers have become very good at that. It started with Paul Martin, actually. He taught everybody the the bag of tricks, so to speak. He was famous (laughs) for that. And... um, Under promising and then coming in over, and then he would brag about how much they had exceeded what they had forecast, and um, and so okay, fair enough, fair enough, (laughs) Uh, and uh, but it doesn't change what I said—the underlying reality that governments are very sensitive in terms of the fiscal revenues flowing in to the growth in the economy. When the so to those people out there, and you know, who sometimes say, "Oh, why do we always talk about GDP? It's not important." Well, yes, it is because GDP is the totality of all our wages and all our salaries and all our incomes, including pensions. So when GDP goes down, that's another way of saying that income for all of us went down. And when income goes down, guess what happens to government? Revenues flowing into the tax treasury go down. And that means there's less money to spend on all the goodies like health care and environment and so forth. So this is a good news story. I'm just, but Bill, very quickly, what I'm worried is that they will squander and do what Newfoundland and Labrador did Documented in the report, the Blue Ribbon report, only a month ago. And they said every time government ran up any kind of a, a surplus over what they had forecast, they promptly spent it instead of saying, let's get out of this, try and get out of this unsustainable position. What I'm worried about is that instead of addressing this to work down the structural deficit they've created, that they may say, oh, look, it, we've got this windfall, so let's go spend some more. We've got more money to spend. And, and, and instead of trying to bring finances back into order.
0: Well, yeah, but that's, I guess, to a certain extent, human nature. I mean, if all of a sudden, you find you, you've got a lot more money in the bank than you thought, or you're getting a check for. You, you, the prudent thing to do is to, okay, let's pay down my debt. Let's yeah. do this. or have to, uh, but instead, you know, we run run after winners, or after, you know, to to whatever, you know, Best Buy and get another stereo or another TV yep. or something like that. Yep. Governments are doing that very same thing, and especially because, well, let's use the Ontario example and the, and the national example. There's going to be a provincial election a year from now. There's going to mm-hmm. be a federal election right. could be tomorrow for all we know uh, governments want to be seen to be spending money on stuff that we want to see yeah. uh, so you know as well as i do if we're talking 35 billion is one of the uh, uh, estimates was that's that money is probably going out the door now again as we speak i agree, I agree. and
3: and you're, you know some listeners can say well so what? Uh, what what's wrong with spending the money if it's being spent on us well that's a good thing and i would say in normal times if this was the 1960s or the 70s or the 80s Hey, next year is going to be grow faster than this year. You got more revenues coming in next year than this year. Don't worry about it. Don't get your knickers in a knot. Except that we're moving into this brave new world for the next 30 a third of a century where we are going to see diminished growth year after year because of the boomers and aging. And this has been forecast by every reputable group going from the Finance Ministry of Canada to the US to the IMF. Nobody challenges this. Aging is changing everything. And it means our productivity is going to go down. Growth is going to go down. Revenues flowing into governments are going to go down. And that's one of the reasons why the and, and expenditures are going up, because as we get older, we consume a lot more health care. And that's why the PBO, Parliamentary Budget Office, has said in the medium term, most of the provinces in Canada, are un, their finances are unsustainable. And as sure as night follows day, When they hit that wall, when they can't borrow money anymore, they're going to come knocking on the door of the governor of Canada and say, help, help, we need to be bailed out, just as Newfoundland and Labrador did earlier this year. So that's what's coming down the road, and that's why we shouldn't be squandering that fiscal surplus. We should be getting our house in order, not because there might be a rainy day down the road, but because there is a veritable storm coming down the road, the the tsunami of the aging crisis.
0: Do they see it coming?
3: They know it's there, but they they figure, well, you know, it'll happen after I've left politics. So that's his (laughs) or her problem, whoever is the leader, the cabinet minister, the prime minister, the premier in five years or seven years from now. So they're just kicking the problem down the road, which will make the problem bigger at that time.
0: Well, and again, that falls right into what you and I have talked about many, many times: is the government's thinking four to five year cycles, yes. which is which is when they want to get reelected. Yes. Uh, they don't much care about what's going to happen 10, 15 years down the way, do they?
3: It's really unfortunate because I do think that when we do hit that wall, people just can't imagine it. Because we've uh, from literally the end of the Second World War, Canada and the U.S. have been and, and Europe have been incredibly prosperous. Every year we made more money; our standard of living went up year after year after year after year after year. After year. No question. And people just cannot really imagine. They just think it's this doom and gloom apocalyptic, you know, apocalyptic forecast. And they don't realize that the fundamentals of our country are changing. We are going to become a much older society, where we're going to go from twelve percent over sixty-five to twenty-five percent, one in four. So right now, Florida is the only place in North America where over a quarter of the population over sixty-five. So in about less than roughly ten years, all of North America is going to start to look. Like Florida, but without the really good weather and the, and the beaches.
0: I reminded of a conversation I had years ago with a a, a counselor city councilor, uh, about their budget and, and and some outlandish thing. I can't even remember what the project was, but it was going to cost millions and millions of dollars. And I said, well, "You can't afford that." And he says, "I oh, will find the money somewhere." That yeah. that seems to be the attitude that that a lot of governments have these days. Is I know what he and Lee is telling me about, and it probably is going to happen that way. But we'll find the money somewhere.
3: Yeah. Um, I I do think we'll be talking, our conversation, all of us, in about five years now, uh, we will not be talking COVID whatsoever. It'll be history. history. We'll Mm -hmm. be talking about it in history books. Um, I I do think we're going to be talking about, uh, I do believe we're going to have two crises. And I mean, for a very long period of time, I mean, 15, 20, 30 years. One is a labor crisis, labor shortages. I completely disagree with Christian Freeland keeps talking about the unemployment crisis we already have labor shortages as we speak 650,000 unfilled jobs in Canada uh there's shortages everywhere and the other will be the health care crisis and you could some would say well we're already there I mean there's waiting lists of two and three years you know you want to get a hip or a knee in this country okay it's not urgent it's not critical it's not like heart attack or stroke or a car accident but still we, it, it's going that's going to be, we'll look back on these days and say, oh, these were the good old days for health care. It's only going to get worse because older people, and the hard data is very hard and very clear. This isn't a forecast. The data coming out of CIHI Canadian Institute of Health Information, that collects the data from the provincial ministries of health, show that older people consume vastly greater amounts of health care than younger people per person per year. So a 65- to 70-year-old is consuming about four times as much per person as a 25-, 35-, 45-, 55-year-old. And then you get into your 70s and 80s, the one I remember. And this is on the record. People can look it up. An 85-year-old in Canada consumes around $25,000 per person per year. And there's going to be a lot more as we go forward. And so we're going to have a health care crisis and a, a shortage of workers' crisis, which we already are experiencing now. So in five years now, COVID will be a distant memory, and we'll be saying, oh, my, you know, how are we going to look after all this? We don't have enough people working and paying taxes, and we have gargantuan amounts of people uh, that need health care treatment. So we're going to have our expenditures going through the roof while our revenues are declining
0: with a smaller workforce. I guess one of the other elements of uh, this perfect storm that you're talking about is, is the national debt. Not the deficit, not the annual deficit, Correct. which is outlandish, too, these days. But, and you mentioned Paul Martin a few minutes ago. I mean, they had, what, I think 11 years of surpluses when he was uh, running the, yeah. the show there. And, and a lot of that money went to pay off the national debt, which yeah. was a rather prudent thing to do. But it's not sexy, is it, Ian? I mean, no. you know, th- nobody cares much about that because they don't look at that number very often. Uh, but uh, that's growing as we sit here yeah, now. Yeah. That's growing, and it has Double. ever since Paul Martin left office. They doubled and- it
3: in a space of a year and a half, and it roughly doubled it uh, to a trillion and a half. And... Um- and, and it has to be paid, and, and, so down, and it's not sexy. I mean, you can't stand up and have a ribbon-cutting ceremony like the minister is doing today, the transport minister in Trois Trollervier yep. promising a high-speed rail train and a train station at Trollervier that people say, oh, isn't that great? Think of all the jobs, you know. And if you stand up and say we put another $100 billion or $50 billion or $10 billion on the national debt, people yawn and say, yeah, but what are you doing for me? Because they don't see the debt as part of something that we all owe. And, uh, and it is a, uh, I, I do think we're coming to a day of reckoning. I'm not predicting doom-gloom crisis. We're all going to die. I'm not anything like that. I'm just saying that we're going to be discussing very, very different things in three or four or five years. And we're going to be – and they're going to be existential. I mean by existential, you know, if you can't get treatment and you're on a queue and you're worried about dying on the queue because you can't get health care, I call that an existential crisis. And if you are running businesses where you literally cannot get workers to, to keep your business open, Well, for that entrepreneur, that's a crisis. And if you can't get enough people to uh, work in seniors' homes, and LTC, uh, long-term care homes, well, for those people who are in a long-term care home that need people to help them and look after them, that's a crisis. So we're going to be talking, we're not going to be talking about frivolous things. You know, we'll look back one day and say, oh, wasn't it so? We had such a frivolous time in the, the first two decades of the 20th century where we talked about all kinds of frivolous things. And, uh, not l- literally existential things that dealt with our very being and existence. Healthcare is not having enough workers to be able to go into the grocery store and buy groceries those queuing in a long, long line or something. It, these are the kinds of problems, I think, we're going to be talking about, and I don't mean 50 or 100 years now. I mean in the near future, maybe one more election cycle after this one.
0: Ian Lee, as always, uh, great to get your perspective on this. Ian, thanks for the time today. My pleasure, Bill. Thanks.